this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So you're looking to sell your business? My guess is you're actually not. My guess is that you'd like to know that you could sell your business down the road, but right now you're busy building it. And if that's the case, standard operating procedures can be your secret sauce. These are the documents that you need to show your employees how to do their work. And we've just developed a new ebook. You can get it at builttosell.com slash SOP. Welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, and you are listening to the podcast that helps you punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating the sale of your company. And today's guest is a real treat for me. The guy's name is David Darmanin, who started Hotjar. If you've ever seen Hotjar, it helps you create better websites, heat maps, and surveys to help you understand how your users are interacting with your website. Well, David took the business from bootstrapping it with his own money to $40 million of ARR, annual recurring revenue, in just seven years. There is a ton to take away from this. Think about this interview is broken up into sort of two major parts. The first being, how do you build a valuable company? And on that measure, David does a great job talking about how he used an alpha and a beta testing group, how he became almost profitable from day one. He talks a lot about referrals and creating word of mouth through incentive programs, which all really rung true for me. He talks about how he used a content strategy in a sort of different way to build uh, his relationship with his subscribers. The second part of the interview is really the negotiation to sell the company, how he thought through when the right time to sell. He talks about the idea that he woke up one moment and, and realized that he had a lot more to lose and uh, how that triggered a sequence of thoughts in his own mind. He talked about the way he interacted with investors and how that experience changed him for the better, I think. He also talks some very specific and gives, I think, layperson definitions for primary and secondary investments, reps and warranties, LTV to CAC and organic versus paid, and lots of really good plain spoken English definitions. I think you're going to really like this interview. My favorite part was at the very end. And if you get there, I think you'll uh, you'll you'll enjoy. It's a, a real treat to hear how David uh, talked to his parents about the sale of of his company. Here to tell you the entire story is David Darmanin. David Darmanin, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Hotjar. So I'm a customer and I love what you guys do. So describe for folks who don't know Hotjar what it is that the software does. So what we do is we make it easy for site owners or teams managing sites to really understand the behavior behind people using the site, not in a privacy weird way, right? More in an aggregate general way so that they can basically build better experiences. And we know what that means, right? It's so everybody listening, to the, everybody listening to this will have a website. So help them visualize what a hot job, a hot job report would look like for them if they've never used it. Just 
try to get inside their mind and describe what a report would look like and how they would benefit from that report? Yeah, the, I'd, I'd say the best way to describe it is that when we launched, we used to say it's hard gives you the why and the what, right? So the what is like, imagine a heat map, right? Many of us have heard about this heat map. It's the idea of you re-visualize your website, but now with an overlay of how people are clicking, behaving on it. Also, you can like play videos like DVRs, not real videos, right? But it's like we're recreating the experience on the page by recording the actual loading of HTML elements. So imagine like a video of people using it, so one by one. Um, and then also the ability to ask like in the moment, really nice questions, surveys, small, large, different ways of deploying. So you can connect those two things together, right? So you're seeing something weird or you ask a question or you're asking a question and seeing certain answers and then you go to the site videos and heat maps to actually understand where is this coming from. And we used it at Value Builder because we looked at it and we were trying to redesign our web, you know, our homepage. And it was it blew my mind when I saw where people click and the heat map of like the buttons that were lit up. Uh, and they were totally different buttons that I thought people would click when they first arrived on our website. And I was like, wow, this is this is blowing my mind right now, watching how people actually use a website. And but this is not help me understand, was this revolutionary software? Like when you guys created it, did did anything like this exist in the world? It was absolutely not revolutionary. <laughs> so what was what was revolutionary, if we take it down a notch, I'd say is the way we rethought the go-to-market strategy in the sense of, I had been reading a lot about the whole concept of the consumerization of enterprise, right? So what does that mean? Big words. So enterprise software, when we think about it historically, was anything from support tools, um, right, to CRMs, and the whole idea, which was predicted by Paul Graham very long time ago, right, was that eventually the go-to-market, right, so the way these, these products are sold will eventually become more and more consumers style, right? Like you're buying Netflix or Spotify or whatnot versus this whole demo, big contract, sales team and whatnot. I come from a B2C background, right? So I understand really well how to sell online. I did e-commerce. I was a consultant on conversion rate optimization and whatnot. So I was using these tools that were built for the enterprise and seeing this change happening. And there was this moment of, hold on, like, why am I trying to build all these weird and crazy business ideas when there's this huge opportunity here to rethink the way the software is not only sold, but also built the way it behaves. So we kind of made it a Netflix version of this complex software that, that was there. So the software existed and your big sort of insight was to make it more consumer-like in the buying and the go-to-market strategy. But help me out on the software itself. Like, did you white label someone else's software, but did you create, like, how did you actually build a product? Yeah, so the inspiration of what to put in the product came from, my work as a consultant for a few years. So I was very lucky to actually working remote, which was my first experience with remote, with consultants from all over the world who were working with some really big brands. Right? So it was, and it was interesting, every few months we'd come together, help each other out, discuss what's working, what's not. And these were some really big brands, right? And it was consistently, it was these set of tools that were really working well. So combining surveys with these micro videos and the heat maps, 
this is kind of was the tool set that we were using. But we, we needed like four or five tools to do this. And it was expensive and the client hated it. It was complicated. So that was kind of the idea there by kind of changing that around. So we said, okay, this is what we should include. Obviously, we didn't have any ready-made technology. So I approached the best people I had worked with. I had worked in software before. And we got together and we said, okay, we have two months to try and build this, right? Let's try and build it. Um, and if we can build it, we'll sell it. If we can't build it, then so be it. And in the meantime, we put up a website saying, here it is. Do you want it? Put in your email. And we were lucky that both things worked out. We got a lot of emails and we built it. So, so you literally built a, a beta in two months for this thing? I would call it an alpha in two months. Okay. And then, and then we, we did a public beta for six months. And I'd say that's probably the, the alpha beta thing. That was probably the, the, the biggest start of success behind hard drive because we we really set this thing on fire in the sense that we advertised it we pushed it we saw people were feeling the same way we did about this we were scratching an itch a lot of people felt so we ran ads we did a lot of beta program uh, kind of send outs we found um uh, magazines that had long email lists, big email lists, and we asked them to introduce the concept. So when we start seeing this pick up, like we said, okay, let's really push the beta really hard. We ended up, I think, with around 30,000 sites, 60,000 people participating. So it was a big, big success. We copied a lot of the ideas of how we did this launch from how Robinhood had launched, but we did our twist on the back of it. Got it. How did you come across the Robinhood case study? Did you read about it somewhere? Or? So... What was happening was that back then I was working on another startup idea and I was being in conversion rate optimization. I had become obsessed with user psychology and understanding how we behave. Uh, Cialdini wrote a great book on the basics and the fundamentals of this. And we decided, again, it was one of these two smart ideas. We decided let's create like a loyalty-based app that can be used in the retail and hospitality business. And... It was, it was a great product, but we had no idea who we were selling to because we didn't know these people and we didn't know how to sell to them. Again, we came from B2C background. So the product was amazing. It did a great job. The go-to-market complete disaster. Um, but at least in building the product and testing it with a small group of people, we found what made people tick, right? So we knew, for example, we discovered something really interesting, which is when you're, when you're doing some kind of loyalty or gamification um, strategy, there's two types of people. There's people that like fixed rewards and there's people that like uh, competing. So fixed reward is share hot jar and get five friends to join and you get t-shirts, right? The people yeah. who compete top 20 in our guest list, they get a lifetime hot jar account, right? So again, we learned this coming from the other app, but we deployed all these things. So all the things that we knew, um, Anyway, that, that was very helpful. So ultimately, Which that works better? helped. Which works so better, fixed or variable? What, what works best is doing both at the same time because you appeal to both people in the group. So we said, um, if you refer five friends, friends, you get this, but also if you compete and get to the top 20 spots, you get these big rewards. Then they have to be much bigger rewards. Got it. I want to go back to the beginning. So you gathered together a few of your friends that worked in the space before. How many founders of Hotjar were there at the time? Like, How many of you guys worked on this product together? So in total, five, including me. 
Got it. How did you guys divvy up the equity? Did you did you all just put in your time at the beginning and equal shares, or did you somebody put no. money in, or what was the approach? So, since I was the person mainly fronting it, I I. I, I held a majority in it also because I put in my own money and I didn't take a salary for the first, I think, six or seven months, right? So I was the kind of taking the biggest risk. Then I approached my ex-boss and said, will you put money in this with me? So he joined in and put in some money. So he also got quite uh, a substantial share. And then the three other founders were more technical. They got a salary immediately from day one. And they got a smaller share. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful and, and helpful to hear your, your thinking about what earned equity, i.e. you're taking the risk, you're the front person, you're the one who got the majority, whereas other people put in cash versus you know, very low risk, i.e. your developer, you're, you know, you're being paid from day one. That's super helpful and, and a question that a lot of our you know, listeners will find interesting, I think. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the launch itself, because there was obviously a lot of thinking and a lot of trial and error in your own admission that went into the go-to-market strategy. So you had sort of what software folks call an alpha, which is a fairly crude version of the product, and then this beta test. And, and explain what the beta testers got. Did they pay for it? What was, what was your approach to pricing and, and the paywall and so forth? So look, the alpha for us is basically code, which if you type in something, something appears on the screen. So there's no interface, right? It's just literally it works. And in terms of the beta, the way we approached it was, as we started to collect more and more email addresses of people who are interested, I started writing an, a weekly email to all the subscribers, to all the people who are interested, telling them what we were working on, sending them a screenshot. So we were very careful to engage them and kind of have them included in this process. Um, and, and I wanted to do this because I knew that the, the next milestone was going to take some time, right? So <laughs> between that two-month alpha, then we knew it was going to take, I think it took maybe three months before someone actually saw something. So knowing that in advance, we wanted to kind of keep them engaged. Then on that three-month mark, we started slowly inviting in group, right? So at that point, we've got an interface. It works. It's crude no battle testing whatsoever, right? So we literally in introduced like 10 people. And they came in and we're noticing, okay, how did they interact? What did they use? Did they use? Then we send them an email, invite them to a call. So it's a very, very uh, high touch in the beginning. Those who had access to the, the tool, the site, product, I'll say, were, were they paying or was it still all free? Great question, because you asked about the paywall. So no, completely free, right? So let's put this into like a timeline because it helps. So June, we incorporated, but we were already tinkering with this in May. So May and June alpha, mm -hmm. then July, August, September, September, we started bringing in the first people into the beta. And I think it was around the following March or April, we, we basically told everyone this is six months beta and anyone who joins the beta gets like um, a free period or whatnot when, when we come out. But yeah, this was very successful. And to be honest, we got caught up in this, which was great. And I think it was around December, like, shit, what are we, how, how is this going to work? Mainly because there was one main reason why we started to get worried, which was when we launched, we, we didn't consider freemium as an option. 
So the idea was that hardware would cost 29. Why 29? We had worked the co-founders together in B2C software for a very long time. And we did super scale price testing in software, like PC software, but not around the world. And we knew 29 had this magical uh, ability, which is it, it's a very interesting point, which meets between demand and supply, which is it's a no-brainer price. We actually capture quite a lot of value on a prosumer level. So we said, so 29, and then we'll have a better version. 18, we literally just decided this in five minutes. So it's a 29, and then there'll be an 89 version, uh, which is basically, so it's triple the price because we said Pareto principle, right? 20% of the people will upgrade, triple the price, so we'll double our, 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 our revenue. So that was the idea. Sure. Funny thing is that we got this really, really close. We spent like 100K later on on pricing research and everything, and this was like done really well. However, what we didn't think through was freemium. And why was this important? Because when we were doing the beta, we had a lot of people answer. We were doing surveys with them. We eat our own dog food, right? So we started to realize that a lot of them could not and would not pay for the product, but we also knew they were referring it to friends. So we're like, whoa, hitting them with a paywall on 29 come March, April, that's not a good idea. So we rethought the whole process. And again, use the principles of what we knew about conversion rate optimization, whatnot. And we decided that what we would do is that when the beta ended, you had one or two months to continue using it, at which point you then automatically start paying 29. You have to put in your credit card. If not, you get downgraded. We created an even simpler basic version, which is free. So the whole idea was that if you don't pay for it later on, then you just switch back to free. Mm -hmm. And what proportion paid and what proportion went down to premium at the end of the beta? Yeah, the thing is, it's not that easy to tell because back then we weren't doing cohort analysis. Mm. Um, all I will say is that when we when we kind of introduced the paywall, like within thirty days, like we were like we were already profitable, so it was immediately a big success. But then what we didn't realize was that there were so many people on the fringes of this project waiting for us to come out of beta because they. There's this perception, right? It's still beta. We're not gonna, we're not, we're not gonna install it or pay for it. So as soon as we did that, outside of people converting, we're using it. We saw an immediate onslaught, literally, of people coming in to buy it, to actually just outright buy it. And then another thing that we did was, as part of that gamification process, we gave six months free to some people who were. So six months in, we got hit by another wave of people then buying. I, I, I would say of that complete group. Again, you have to take this with a pinch of salt. I'd say it's something in the region of 5% that converted of all the people that we had uh, of the initial audience. On the beta. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what an, what an amazing launch. And so this was, it sounds like inspired by Robin Hood, but also a little bit of dancing. Oh, on Robin the, Hood on, and many other, many other, like Gmail. There was a lot of kind of launches that we looked at. Hi there, it's John Warlow. You're listening to Built to Sell Radio. And today my guest is Hotjar founder, CEO, David Darmanin. A lot of people, I'm, I'm asking this myself, and I'm sure a lot of people are asking the same question. That is, how did you have the stomach to underwrite a, it looks like an almost nine-month beta, alpha slash beta, without a single person buying. Like, 
a lot of people listening to that would go, A, how did you finance that personally? Because it was your money and the line. And so you would have had to find some way of living over that nine month period. B, what gave you the confidence during that nine month period that when you flip the switch, this was all going to work? So two questions I'll, I'll ask you to ask the answer no, the first great, one first, great. if you wouldn't mind. So first off, so I'm extremely blessed and lucky that I, I managed to have a very good consulting gig going on uh, before Hodjar. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, before before we started the beta. So basically what, what I did was uh, a previous employer of mine, um, I was working for them, continued to work as a consultant. And also I kept a couple of gigs that I had as a consultant. So there's two things to it. I saved up a lot of so cash, right? So I, I didn't buy any fancy cars when I was a consultant. I didn't spend on a house. I didn't buy any nice clothes. So it's all basic, all simple. Just put all the money in the bank. Uh, because I knew my game plan was I didn't want to sell my time. I wanted to build equity, right? So I knew that selling my time was okay as kind of a stepping stone, even though I was making some very good money. So that was one. And then two, so I had that cushion. And then number two, what I did was for the first six months, instead of taking a salary, all my work as a consultant was being invoiced by the business. So rather than putting my cash immediately, I literally switched the whole flow of income into the business. And then also my ex-boss, he put in a substantial cushion in there, which to be honest, as a, as a new CEO of a tiny company, gave me the confidence. Some of this cash we didn't even use, but it gave me the confidence to take these decisions and do things. Then to answer your question, what, what gave me the stamina, like I have no idea because this is really unlike me back then. But I remember clearly, I had tried two startups, two projects, which failed. Uh, again, smart idea, smart product. I was thinking too small. And I remember there's this point. I woke up my, my wife at like four o'clock in the morning. We, have a, we had a three month, no, two month old uh, newborn, right? And I told her, I know, I know what it is. I'm thinking too small. I'm not thinking big enough. Um, I just read the book. I'm, like, I had six, seven books, which had a huge impact. Built to Sell was one of them. Uh, Emit was another. Um, but the one I think that gave me the push a little bit was definitely The Fastlane Millionaire, which has a horrible title, but it's a really, really good book in terms of kind of just giving you this. And then the other one was um, Seth Godin's, what's it called? Um, Purple Cow, maybe? or No, it's The Dip. The Dip. The Dip, Which basically sure. talks about the whole idea of either you're first or you're kind of nothing, right? And I, so there was this obsession in my mind of what am I, what are we going to be first in? And to be first, we need to think big. So yeah, I just told my wife, I'm just going to switch all the money to this. Like we're going to do it and we're going to do it and we're going to do it right. What was her reaction? Projects, she was like, do whatever you want. I just want to go back to sleep. Um, <laughs> my wife, Wait. I'm very lucky that my wife is extremely supportive of all my craziness throughout our whole relationship. And this was just another example of that. That's awesome. You mentioned the two failures and, and you distilled it down to you know, not thinking big enough uh, and, and Seth Godin's The Dip. I mean, a lot of people listening to that would be like, that doesn't make sense. Like, If you pour jet fuel onto a bad business model, it's just going to crash faster than it would have crashed if you kind of thought smaller. So 
help me unpack that. Like when you say you weren't thinking big enough, like what were the real reasons that the two previous businesses failed? And I think in isolation, not thinking big enough doesn't make sense. I think we need to combine it with my strengths. So my strengths are B2C, right? I'm a product-led guy. I'm a, my background is I'm a designer. I'm a, um, I'm a marketer, like a little bit of everything, but more than anything, I'm a designer product creator. So I'm not, like I'm, I'm one of those kind of entrepreneurs, founders who says, I hate sales, sales teams and stuff, right? and then eventually regrets that and has to build it anyway. Um, <laughs> but we didn't have a sales team for like three, four years, right? So that's not what I, like that just didn't, like, I'm type of person, I need to be excited, right? And so the second thing that we built, we probably could have sold it with a sales team, but that was just going to be slow and painful. That's not what I wanted to do, right? So, um, so by big enough, I mean, the market needs to be big enough that there's demand for it, there's space to grow, but more importantly, there's space for word of mouth to work, right? Because if you create something too niche, then it makes sense, right? Economics-wise, the price needs to be high and you need to sell it by hand. Whereas if you create something simple and something that it's easy to sell, it's something that can kind of uh, grow on its own. So that, that, that's what I wanted to do. Got it. And, and again, playing to your strengths as a B2C consu- you know, business to consumer person who understood word of mouth and simplicity. And, and the, you know, a lot of things can be explained away by a salesperson, right? Like if you, have the, if you have the luxury of a live demo and you're like, oh, don't worry about that button over here. What you really need to focus your attention in over is over here. And you can kind of get away with some bad product design, but you can't in a business consumer space, right? Which is which is uh, what you proved so well. The product itself, again, you mentioned that you you did not necessarily reinvent the wheel. It was the go-to-market strategy, which was innovative. Was there, as you grew the business, did you try to create a moat, i.e. some differentiation in the product itself that you thought you could protect or you know, did, did you know there was always going to be another developer around the corner developing something, knocking you off effectively? Yeah. Whether it was a good decision or not, again, we tend to take decisions based more on what we enjoy doing. Like we, we, didn't, we didn't put any time around thinking about the motors. And sometimes we spoke about it, but the reality is we realized the speed at which we go to market, the speed at which we get it into people's hands was more important. Plus, there was another aspect to it, right? I didn't speak to much, which is a mistake, is that there was also a strong purpose behind this business, which was two sides to it. One, we had worked in businesses before, which we didn't enjoy. So we started this with a very strong conviction. Obviously, first, it was more survival, right? So when we actually survived, then our, our, our values came out in terms of, oh, this is working? Okay, so this is how we're going to build it. Um, and that was, we wanted to build a place where we would want to work. And I know it sounds cliche, but obviously that depends on what values you have, right? And our values are more uh, based on uh, transparency, care, trust. like so. We, and more also beyond that, respect, freedom, these type of kind of values. So we wanted to build a fully transparent, like remote business. So this this was kind of very, very important to us. But more important to that, we had worked at businesses where they were a little bit too money profit focused. Um, 
And I think it's mainly because it's the old school way of doing it. They weren't people who were evil or anything. So a big part of this was we worked in businesses where they didn't know how to do a survey or to read the survey or didn't have the mindset to even act on the survey. So the big thing for us was like, we just wanted to get this into the hands of as many people as possible, right? Because I remember I worked in a business where I wasn't happy with the way we were doing things and buying the software, which would help me build a case was so expensive and so difficult. Why should that be the case? You know, that was kind of the main thing for us. So we're like, no, this should be like free. Any team in the world should be able to convince their boss that they have a shitty site, shit experience, shit product, and they have to fix it. That was kind of the main main purpose. Got it. That uh, that's great. So you don't want to build a the... moat around that, if you know what I mean. So yeah, no, totally, totally. How did the blog, your blog strategy, evolve? In the beginning, it was <laughs> simply kind of buying you time to develop the product by kind of showing you all the things that you were working on and and but over time i'm guessing your blog strategy evolved a little bit so look um we dis- we took an active decision in the beginning to not invest a lot of time into content so for good or for worse <clears throat> so we were doing a random article here and there talking about the business how we created it so for us content was actually more important to talk about the business and how we're building it as a means of employing and attracting talent Hmm. Why? Because the our paid activities of like running ads, of doing social paid, it was just so effective back then, especially in this green field where there's nothing, mm-hmm. that it made no sense for us time for time to be writing content. Uh, and I think that was the right move. I think then we waited too long to invest into content. So then later on, we said, okay, now obviously there's a point where you start seeing diminishing returns on scaling paid. And we started building out a marketing team focused on content, which we now have. What's good though, is that because of the way we do surveys, that program we did in the beginning, the beta and everything, the domain is extremely strong. So now everything that we write about, we're ranking really well. So, so we've kind of built, again, the foundations and equity for what now is very effective content. Got it. And so you were running paid advertising in i'm assuming some of the social like facebook linkedin you were doing i'm assuming some google search as well not, or what would you- not linkedin so in the beginning we were doing very low cost um <clears throat> because obviously to do high cost you need to first make sure you have enough lifetime value in there right to, to do that and that's we were very careful with cash because we had no investors and we never did. <clears throat> so to start off with, what we were doing is we did a lot of things that didn't scale. So one thing that was really, really effective is a lot of people think email is not sexy, right? So, <laughs> so we were doing email. So we, we knew we were targeting web designers, um, designers, obviously UX designers, marketers. So we would go to these big communities and publications which had these lists I talked about before, and would say, would you introduce us to your community and say, here is, here is their purpose, what they're doing, and there's a free version, and they obviously will give you money. <laughs> um, and this worked really well, right? And what we were doing was, we did Facebook first, and we tested a lot of different ads where it's cheap, and you can target by role, and then we'd use those ads and creatives in the email where you can't test, right? So one-shot thing. So this worked really well. We did Facebook emails and sponsored ads and articles for quite a long time. I'd say probably a year or so. 
at which point the numbers start to grow so much. We now know our LTV. We started to do some Google paid ads, some display ads. And then when that worked, those initial things like don't make sense anymore because they're just too small, right? So there's, what was there's it costing you to win a, what was it costing you to win a, a, a like a, a trial user, like a, a free trial user? Four bucks. Four bucks to get a trial. And then were you still in that 5% of trials converting or what was the, what was your conversion rate Round, on the trial? Roundabout. Well, actually the four bucks was more around the, the beta stage. Mm-hmm. That went up a little bit, which makes sense when we exited the beta and was like, now you have a pricing page. Blah, blah. So I think it went up to then 10, 15, which was still very good. To get a trial user. <clears throat> to get a trial user. And then we would convert around 5 to 7%. Again, you have to look at this on a cohort view because it would take some time for them because they had the choice of either free or a trial, right? So Got it. And then we so started back- a lot of tests. Okay, so Sorry. I'm backing into that at around two hundred dollars ish to get a paid user. Correct. Two to two to and two. And that grew two. eventually over time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how did that compare with your lifetime value? One of the things we talk a lot about on this show, especially when we do like a SaaS related show, software as a service, is this LTV to CAC ratio. So the Very important. And, and again, for for folks who don't know that acronym, LTV stands for lifetime value, CAC, customer acquisition costs. So you're acquiring customers for you know kind of in the two to $300 range. How did that compare to what you would win typically lifetime value? And it's a complex answer. And I love this. I geek out on this stuff, right? (laughs) So here's what we were doing, which I think this is ears wide open. Anyone who wants to go big B2C, I think this is a really important lesson to learn, right? So one of the most bullish things that we did was that those stats that I'm giving you are all related specifically to paid if we do attribution only to paid, right? But we decided we're not going to do that. So what we did was we know that you can never fully attribute. So by attribute, we mean like measure specifically what's from where someone got the trial or bought, right? Sure. We, we knew from the beta, the beta was like the key to us, where right? we knew that word of mouth was strong and weird, right? So mom and pop shop, have a dinner and tell their cousin who works at Microsoft about Hotjar, you know, because yeah. the story was weird enough. You know what I mean? These, these guys, heat maps and like, so there was a lot of this kind of spreading. So what we did was we took this decision that we would look at what's called blended results, right? So we take both organic and paid and combine those two together. But we knew we would always have an LT, a healthy LTV to CAC ratio. So if we took the LTV to CAC ratio for paid alone, it was probably maybe between two and three, so not not very good. But then when you look at the blended results in the beginning, especially, it was more like five, six times, right? So it was a great number. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's that approach that we had of like not obsessing too much about exactly what we would look though at like if a campaign is bringing in trials or not, we knew that was a health indicator, we'd measure every campaign but we'd look more at the holistic results overall of like that footprint because ultimately Hotjar always started from there, right? A little bit of paid and a little bit of word of mouth working together. So why change the recipe? So our idea was just doing it that way. Today at the scale we're at, we obviously do this at a much, much more um, 
advanced, <laughs> sophisticated, S- scientific. Yeah. yeah. But in the first two three years where you're scaling, this I think is very very important to create the biggest yeah. footprint you can. Because you know, I think I think most investors will say you know three to one is kind of where you need to be to raise a whole lot of money at a decent valuation. So you're in the kind of two to three. Some would have said you need to get it over three to scale. But you you took the view that on a blended basis we're doing just fine because we're getting word of mouth. We're getting some of the the organic stuff. Exactly, and then we did like random tests where we'd pause on our paid right to see what happened, and you'd see organic drop. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. so we knew that obviously, and obviously the, these were big budgets that we were spending, right? So obviously it makes sense that when you run this level of ads and things everywhere, that it has a big spillover effect. And obviously if you don't attribute back to it, then it's a big mistake, right? Because then you're going to stop doing it and then miss out on the organic byproduct that comes from that. You mentioned something in passing and kind of skipped over it quickly, but I think a lot of people's ears perked up when, when you said you never took funding. Yes. This is very interesting because for most businesses that got to the size that you got, uh, they're, they're financed to two, three, or four rounds of, of financing, but you didn't. Take me through that. What was You've already talked about how you got you know, the first few beta users and sort of you know, bootstrapped the early days, but how did you go from you know, March when you turned on the paywall uh, you are you are immediately you mentioned profitable with the small team that you had, so a couple of developers on staff. But how did you go from that to what you ended up getting to? I think the, I think I saw uh, twenty five million ARR annual recurring revenue was roughly twenty twenty. Am I getting that right? How did you? Um, no, twenty 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 one could be. Actually, now I need to backtrack the numbers. But yeah, so in 2020, we were a little bit higher than that. Okay, so sort of in that, so in any, in that, yeah, that's a lot of ARR yeah, yeah. to get to on your own without outside funding. So how did you do yeah. that? Yeah, so I think when, when we joined forces, sold to Content Square, I think we, we were at around 40 million ARR, roundabout. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so look, the, we were profitable immediately, right? So all we did was we were very careful with the money. We reinvested, but we also kept a little bit of profitability. Um, and as we grew, all of those things grew together. So with our, with our finances, we were very careful to set what we called like an overall profitability goal and then allocated the the margin to departments. So it wasn't like very obsessed about every number and line item. So it was like a more of a distributed way of doing it, but profitability was at the core of everything. So really we just self-funded it, to be honest, um, over time. So we never injected any more cash into the business from that point onwards. But you're buying advertising and and it's costing... Um, what did we say? Roughly five, uh, $10 to get a trial user. And then how long was your trial? Um, it was 30 days in the beginning, then 15 days. Okay. So 15 days. So we you got to finance. Very, yeah. very, very quick return. It was a very, even till today, like the, 
the <clears throat> the time to buy is very fast with hard drives. Mm. Like it's again more consumerish rather than than the sales cycle. Although we do the yeah. sales cycle side of the business is growing. Um, but yeah, so so what I meant before is what we what we said was listen, <clears throat> we want let's say a healthy profitability margin is fifteen percent, right? Then what we said was, okay, 40% of that is going to the marketing department, right? So, so basically what, what happened was every month, we didn't wait for the year to close, right? Every month, th- then within marketing, they attributed probably half of that to spend, right? So every month as the subscriptions come in, clock in, we immediately deploy onto advertising and it's constantly growing with MRR. As the MRR grows, that spend grows automatically. Got it. Hi there, it's John Warlow. You're listening to Built to Sell Radio. And today my guest is Hotjar founder, CEO, David Darmanin. And were you able to maintain that kind of 10 to 15% profitability all the way up to 40 million in ARR? It was the other way around. We were struggling to keep it like that because it kept on widening up. What do you mean? It it, the profit margin became bigger. Bigger. So yeah, did you ever get to a point where, I mean... 10 points on 40 million is 4 million bucks. 20 points is 8 million bucks. <laughs> like at some point, it's a, there's a lot of cash being thrown off from this business. Did you ever get to the point where you thought, well, hold on a second, maybe, maybe we'll just, just kind of ride it out here and, and just start to, to declare some dividends and maybe pull back on the, the, the growth and just cash some checks? Did you guys ever have that conversation? So that was that was the plan. So let's let's deconstruct that, right? Because there's a lot of uh, ideas in there. So the first yeah. one was, look, as soon as so so we also need to speak a little bit about the side story, which is we did speak to investors, right? So I'd say building Hodger is probably the most schizophrenic experience I've ever had in my life <laughs> overall, which is because you read all these articles and you hear all these interviews and podcasts, which I eventually ended up taking a break from, right? Where you start to think, but oh shit, am we doing this wrong? Should we be speaking to investors? So we spoke to investors quite a few times. First time we spoke to them, we were eager to do it because we were still early on. They kind of didn't want to, like we told them the range of equity we're willing to give for the range of capital. And they offered us the highest, they wanted the highest equity for the lowest capital. And we were like- What were those numbers? Can, we, can you share how much equity so you were willing said, to give and what kind of valuation yeah. you wanted to give? So, yeah. so I don't even remember when this was, right? So this is just like very quick recall. So I think we said like 10 to 20 or 10 to 25% of the business. It was very early on, right? For like three to 5 million or something like this. Mm-hmm. And basically, for example, they told us, we'll give you 3 million for 20% or 25%. We were like, really? <laughs> like, we're, fa- we're growing this fast. We're profitable. Like, this is such a huge opportunity. So that was pissing off because I think that could, that could have been interesting. But at the same time, I think it was great because we stayed true to kind of the cause in terms of like, just to stay profitable, we, we run this on our own. Do you um, remember ballpark what you might have been at ARR at that stage when you were saying, look, I'll give you, you know, they were offering 3 million for 25%. No, I, I can't, I can't remember what that was. No, I don't remember. Cause still a lot of people listening to that and saying, well, it's still $12 million for a very early idea that may have been no, fair. No, no, this was, we were, we were in good MRR. No, this, this we weren't being, 
weren't being unrealistic. So let's calculate this, right? So if we're saying, if we were asking 3 million for 10%, right? So we're valuing the business at 30. Mm -hmm. So we must have been, yeah, we were were closing in on 10 million in, in ARR. Okay. Okay. So it's much further down the road. And so were you th- did, at the time, were you thinking sort of a three, three times ARR was a reasonable valuation? Like, was that sort of where your head was at? No, I think, I think it, again, this is very long time ago, but it was more, I think it was more like something in the, in the area of five X. Again, this was based again on the rounds we were seeing then and based on the data that we were getting then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were thinking, Five was a was a reasonable number on top line revenue, five yeah. x, and and so your early sort of dipping your toes in the investor world was not overwhelming. You felt like they were no. sort of undervaluing yeah. the company. Yeah. yeah, and and we're the type of people like that. We again, we want to have fun doing this. It has to make sense, and like we yeah. we felt like it was a stupid negotiation. So we just like, and by so this was the we were close to hitting 10 million already in the first year of selling. So this was actually quite early on. Wow. Seriously? Yeah, so it was, yeah, yeah, we came out like quite fast. So this was, I think, within one year of going, what, maybe <laughs> That's 18 unbelievable. months. Yeah, so it was, it's literally like been like quite a straight line overall, quite predictable. Uh, so this is my point, right? Like a startup, and I think they regret like taking that approach. I would imagine. Right? Because, we felt it was very cheeky of them to come at us with like, you know, just giving us at least middle road would have been nice. Like it was just the approach and we just, we had our doubts already. Like the investor is evil in the room kind of thing, which is stupid, right? Because it's not the case. But then that kind of activated that. Then later on, we did speak to investors because there was interest. Like, look, the one thing that I didn't understand, having no experience of investor world before, is that, again, maybe it's wrong, because right? I don't have any experience of the investor world, is that investors basically work with kind of a sales team, right? You've got this team building up leads, and then, then you speak to them. So what was happening to me was I, I was just, yes, you can imagine, as we blogged about this, we were literally being bombarded by incoming requests <clears throat> from investors. And at a certain point, the names started to become important names, right? And important people at these uh, names. So people who are very famous entrepreneurs who are like in residency and becoming a partner and are like, shit, like I can't say no to these guys. So we got sucked into one of these things. And it was a horrible experience because we didn't get along. I don't think they liked us, but maybe we were more excited about it. And we were obviously the most non-investor material you can imagine, right? So back then we were fully remote, like let's just purpose-driven, let's just get this into the hands of everyone. Like we'll, we'll monetize later. And like, so it was, it, was, um, it, was, it was an immediate clash. Also, we were at very high ARR levels for the level of sophistication that the business was at compared to sales-driven businesses. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we're absolutely. At, we're at 20 million speaking to investors. They're used to speaking to much more sophisticated business-oriented kind of companies than us, right? So there was, there was quite a few dynamics. So, so yeah. Back to the question. So you, you said no to some early stage in, uh, in investment rounds. You bootstrapped it yourself. You're at 40 million profitable, like seriously profitable. Yes, sorry. 
Did you ever marks, think yeah. like, okay, so yes, definitely at this point some we were dividends. thinking, <laughs> yeah. So at this point we were definitely saying, yes, we should, we should do some dividends because there was too much cash in the business. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how to spend it. <clears throat> and also, I also had the back of my mind. I, I'll be honest. This was the phase where I started to feel there's more to lose than to win. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with privacy, GDPR, and like lawsuits and things, you start getting on the radar, right? Um, and there's a lot of fear involved in the journey of entrepreneurship, especially when, when you get to success. Um, <clears throat> Can so you the unpack first thing that, want- by the way? Just for folks may have not heard that as it's, I think, is a really important thing for people to hear. Your words were, you got to the point where there was more to lose than to win. Just explain what you mean by that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, we could spend quite a lot of time on that. Look, when, you, when I started the business, you have to keep in mind, I'm in Malta, right? Malta's parents, like nothing like this ever existed, right? Like it's a success story, like start. So while it was exciting and amazing in the beginning, there's also pressure that comes a little bit later on around like, what does this journey end up being, right? Outside of that, also in the beginning, um, I had failed, right? And then succeeded with this. And you reach a point where, quite frankly, you're making this profit, right? And you're making, and you know the word, let's say, let's say you know, right, that you could cash in, I'm inventing now, right? $10 million, right? You know that's in your pocket, right? But it's not there, right? So it starts to reach the point of, okay, what's more than 10? Yes, okay, there's much more than 10. But it's for someone who's doing this the first time and maybe doesn't have that that level of opportunity, it starts to become this game of chicken. You know what I mean? Like, shit, like how far do I push this? So anyway, around this time, I realized, you know what would make me feel more comfortable if I paid back to my boss all his money, which he put in like 400,000 euros. So that was quite a lot. And I had put in two, 300,000 as well of my own money through consultancy work. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't we do a dividend which returns exactly that amount to him, right? So just done. It's a nice sweetener for me and it's a nice sweetener for the other guys as well. Uh, so we introduced this concept back then of um, a loyalty bonus to the team. So whether the company exits um, and in this case, we used it for the dividend. We, we calculated, we gave them a bonus on, on the back of this. It was great, felt good, and then back to business. But it, yeah, it started to dawn on me of, like, actually, it's more likely that we're going to run this business profitably over time. And that's more, more than enough, more than happy. So we're more than happy with that outcome. So at some point, you declared these dividends when you say loyalty bonus, the, the, the size of the bonus was tied to your tenure in the company. The longer you'd stayed, the more the bonus yeah. you, you received. Got it. And in addition to that, wrong. in addition to that, you and your co-founder were bonused out the, the initial cash you put in. Yeah. So we did a dividend that went to all shareholders. And then on mm-hmm. top of that, we calculated that to, we use that to calculate the bonus that goes out to the team. Got it. Got it. And in what way did that for you, why was that, in, why was that important? It sounds um, almost uh, emblematic or yes, symbolic, in some way, definitely. symbolic is the word I was looking for. Yeah. 100%. In the moment, there was more logic to it, but after it was done, I realized it was more symbolic. I think it was more pride. It was more that fear of 
like if this all goes to shit, at least something did happen. So I, I definitely see a lot of fear in me back then. And I think a big part of this is the fact that imagine I am, so I am the frontman founder, right? Obviously I have co-founders with me. I am the CEO. I am the board. I am the secretary, right? Like I'm everything. Um, and this was the point where I started to realize, actually, this, pro- this is not a problem of a dividend. This is actually a problem of governance of like this, like th- we need to rethink this. And slowly I started to think, actually, maybe I shouldn't be CEO and maybe I should be the, like, the board because I don't want investors. It's not going to happen. And because we started to see this clarity of let's keep this a private business for as long as we can, a business that will last as long as possible, then actually I should build a great leadership team and I'm on the board kind of um, driving more the vision and where we're going with the business. And I started this two, three year project very slowly, very secretly of building that out. Interesting. And I think that dovetails into a conversation we had before we hit record, which was this, this kind of distinction between built to sell versus, how did you put it? Uh, building so that you could sell. Explain to me your thinking between those and how those are different. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So look, when, when, I, when I read the book Built to Sell and, and I loved it, it, it brought so much clarity around the way you think about the business as an entity, right? In terms of like, and, and like how you intertwine with that. So that was a big takeaway for me more than anything. And I think the ability to sell a business with you not kind of being an intrinsic part of it had more value to me than the sale itself. I know it sounds crazy, but it's because you're building the company in the right way. But ultimately we also knew that we would, that we wanted to build a company that was worth something. It was the whole idea we mentioned earlier of you're not selling your time, you're building equity, right? So if you can't sell something, then (laughs) there is no equity. It's the concept of selling. However, the balance to that, and I think it comes from my experience in being in businesses that were actively planned to be sold, but ironically, were not built to be sold. So it's quite Mm. interesting. And when I read your book in looking back at my experiences, I realized that. So I wanted to do the opposite. So I wanted to build a company that could be sold, but not plan to sell it. So what does that mean? (laughs) So I, I think there's something dangerous in planning to sell in terms of kind of thinking, but what would make this company more valuable and how could we, uh, how could we kind of increase the value and whatnot? And because I think it's dangerous because it takes you, it leads you down paths where you take dangerous decisions. So in my opinion, you should run a business with a cause, right? More than anything. I think that's the most important thing. Why? Because business is not monopoly. It's not a finite game. Right? There's no end to it. So if you're planning to sell, then you're making it into a finite game. So I think it's more important to make it into an infinite game and have this cause like, so we're thinking about running this forever. And what, so what's going to keep us going forever? So you can't sit down and planning selling the business because then you already failed, in my opinion. But you need to build it in a way that it can be sold because if you are building something valuable, and you miss that part, then you're missing one of the most important things in building equity. So that's my logic around it. 
I love that. I love that. It's funny. Bo Burlingham, who wrote uh, "Finish Big" and 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 uh, "Staking the Outcome" and "Small Giants," was his was his most famous book. I think uh, he was very kind enough to write the forward for Built to Sell. And he wrote in his forward very much the same thinking, like the, the idea that the best businesses are built to last forever, yet structured so that they could be sold. And, and I, it, it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his introduction, but it sounds a lot like your what you just described, this distinction between building to sell versus planning to sell. And I think such a... See, such that's interesting message. because I read that forward right? A few months before I started Hard Jarb. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's implanted into my brain. There you go. Your book. We'll yeah. credit Bo for, uh, for some of this. Thank you, Let's Bo. get into the exit itself because it is, it is uh, in and of itself a spectacular story. So um, you're thinking uh, when, when you went through these investor rounds, you're, you're thinking sort of around five times revenue is a reasonable number. You mentioned that you know, before we hit record that, that, that you'd sort of talked among your teammates and, and fellow investors about like, you know, would we ever sell? You got questions about it, didn't you? Yeah, because imagine, right? We're doing these company get-togethers and events and we're saying, listen, here's the trajectory. Here's what we're doing. Um, here's our goal. We're not looking to sell. Like we're not, and, because we have people asking us, why don't we have options, Right. We're like, we don't have options because we're not doing this to sell. Um, and we don't want people to join us for that lottery ticket because that's not what we're doing here, right? So, but but obviously that was a that was a kind of a big topic. And that's why we introduced the loyalty bonus because we want to create our own take on it because we knew it could happen, right? And the founders between us, we had talked about this, obviously, right? Like if someone had to, even if you're having a drink out, like, so if someone had to come and try and buy Audra, would we sell it, right? And this was always a very contentious topic, not between us, but for all of us, right? But I think what started to happen over time is that people started to ask us also this question, right? Of, it wasn't just between us. They would come to us and say, okay, so, especially we're having a drink at the event. Okay, so, so how much, right? Like, what would that number be? And the reason why they would ask that question, we would always say, we're not planning to sell, right? But if someone came to us and it made sense, we would consider it. Like, we want to be honest with you. And that's why we have the loyalty. So they start, you start to ask us, like, so what would be that number, right? And like, we don't know. Like, we haven't, like, there's no number in the team manual or like in the business plan or something. But I remember there was a specific time we were having drinks and like, we were upping the number, right? And I think someone, I think it was Andrew, um, uh, he's from Cyprus. He told me a hundred million, Dave, hundred million. Like, would that make you, I was like, come on, dude. Like uh, no one here would say no to a hundred million. Right. So it was just back then we already kind of were recognizing that ultimately if there's a very big number, it would, it would make us think about it. Right. Uh, definitely. Yeah. 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 It's a fun game to play over drinks for sure. And I think most people, even the, even the most ardent, folks who say, I'm going to pass my business on to my kids. And uh, you know, it's going to be a multi Eventually you get to a number high enough where you're like, all right, well, maybe if it was that high. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so back then when we talked about that number, n- never would I have expected that hardware would be m- worth much more than that. Right. So that's yeah. kind of also like in your brain, you can't even imagine these things when they happen. And, and, and sometimes you're lucky, which I think is also in our case, that things really fit in uh, when it came to the, to the acquisition. So how did that come about? 
So there's a very interesting story here. Um, so first off, we were adamant that we weren't going to work with investors, right? Um, and then we explored that. We were also adamant that we wouldn't sell. Although I'll be honest, right? There were times, not publicly, but privately, I would say to my wife, God damn it, I wish kind of, I could just sell the business right now. And the reason why is the business took a big toll on me personally, right? This fact that I was so many roles at one go, it was very tough. I also am a person I care a lot. So I care a lot about the team. COVID in particular was, even though it didn't have such a negative impact on us, but I realized it was such a big toll it took on us, uh, especially on me. And also there was this natural process that was happening, which is my co-founders, one of them moved out of the business. He's not an operator, the ex-boss, right? So he, obviously that wasn't a surprise. And then slowly I could see that the others weren't as excited about it. And there's a reason, so it's not their fault, which is as the company grew, we needed new leadership, right? We, we needed experienced people to run the company. And we had already discussed it between us, right? That we knew that if the time came, like that we would hire the people to do this job. So obviously as like, I hope that us, the co-founders, we would run the business together for as long as we could. But sometimes you just need to accept that things didn't, so we're, we're not working out. So as our profit margin was growing, right, we weren't hiring fast enough. We didn't have enough engineers, so we were falling behind. So this was the point where we said, okay, we need to build this team. So we hired people and blah, blah, blah. So I think over time, the co-founders, I think they felt a little bit this fact that they were no longer involved in the leadership as much as, so you could feel that things were changing, right? And roughly at the around same time, <coughs> Jonathan, the CEO of Content Square, he reached out to me. So this was like three years before the acquisition, right? And he's like, <coughs> in his very thick French accent, which I love, he's like, I love you guys. You're doing some great things. Like we should talk. We do enterprise. You do SMB. And we kicked off this kind of weird relationship, right? Of <clears throat> non-competing, but kind of competing uh, companies. The reason is we didn't see them as a competitor, but we kind of ironically took some of their clients over to us. And they, I think, would target our clients because they were the perfect leads for them to sell to, right? So there was this weird kind of banter between us and whatnot. Um, and I never took them seriously, I'll be honest. Um, but this guy impressed me and I kept a, a record of all the calls we took over those three years. So he would, and, and, and never, never did I think that we were actually going to end up selling to them. But as time passed, we were seeing them they were growing up, they were becoming bigger, rounds growing. I read Such somewhere, like I read like a, a little, because I was doing a little bit of research on Content Square and they raised a truckload of money at a huge valuation. Do you remember what that was? It was like a billion five valuation or something like that. Am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah, it's a 500 million round from SoftBank. That was right before they, they acquired Hotjar. And, um, and how much <clears throat> revenue were they generating at the time of, of that? Do you, do you, do you, do you know? Um, so that they were, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that actually. Okay, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. <laughs> so they, they've raised a big war chest. Uh, and, and for folks listening, that's also a very uh, good time. If, you know, someone who you've been friendly with for a period of time raises a bunch of money, the reason they're raising that money is often for acquisitions. So it's often a good sign that they might Fact. be interested in having a conversation. Yeah. So 
keep going. So they raised. So this. this so this during this three-year relationship, right? We spoke a lot about um, the two companies. How we're like, we were quite open with each other. We're quite kind of both quite frank, no bullshit kind of people. So we got along yep. both very European. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and um, and basically. It was interesting that COVID had a big impact on us because then we were speaking about how it affected us, how we dealt with it. And, and COVID had an accelerator on this relationship in the sense that, whereas maybe, because I'm not even sure, maybe they saw remote as kind of a, in, a, in a particular light that changed. And also they were doing events to get leads, right? And that changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were completely digital and whatnot. So I think it was just, perhaps it accelerated in their mind of we really want to get into the SMB side of things. And also this is the future, right? More product led, more remote and whatnot. So look, I'll be honest with you. They knocked on the door and put numbers to us a few times. And we said, no, actually quite a few times. We were quite that. It was like, no, absolutely not. This is not going to happen. <clears throat> and, and then what happened was it was a combination of bigger rounds being raised, but also we started spending more and more time about visions and how we're building the business and whatnot. Also it was a time where I had just exited from the role of CEO, finally now to build out the board. So I'm thinking vision long-term. We started to see some really interesting synergies between the two businesses where we're strong, they're weak, where they're strong, we're weak. And we started to think about, oh, wow, like what if we built this much bigger thing together and uh, maybe one day this would be a public company. This was very top of mind to me, being on my own now, relatively, of thinking how I don't want to give this business to my kids, right? But I want this to last. So there was this moment of where we really, I explained to Jonathan, like the just cause we were creating from Simon Sinek's framework and our vision of the future. He loved the way we articulated it. And he's like, let's do it together. Like, let's go. So it was this moment of kind of, Let's do it. And quite frankly, the way we approached it on our end was very scientifically. (laughs) We looked at, okay, we're on a trajectory to go public if we wanted to, right? So what would that look like? And we calculated all the different scenarios and the impact it would have on the shareholders, on the new leadership team, and on the team, right? Different scenarios going from worst to best. And then the acquisition plus then the future of that and compared the two scenarios. And it was quite clear that this was like something we couldn't pass on. It was just too exciting of an opportunity, especially in a context of much more heated competition, much more a market that's growing faster, but attracting a lot of attention. So I was expecting consolidation and I, like it was very clear that we had to pick our our partners very quickly if that makes sense so that that's a little bit of the background of how we got to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you say compared scenarios uh so going public you're looking at okay if i'm a shareholder uh, is, the, is the majority <clears throat> shareholder i go public this is the sort of amount of money that i would stand to gain this is you know the average employee would gain x and then in this case you, you're compared and so when you're comparing the scenarios between going public versus being acquired is the single criterion the amount of money you would gain or were you considering other criteria with those two potential roads? We were considering many other criteria, but at the same time, the bottom line was important to us to understand that we can go in front of the team and say, you know what, we've looked also at 
like what this impacts you financially and what this means to you. But then at the same time, we also were very excited because Content Square told us they wanted to keep on running Hotjar as is. They wanted to take things that we were doing from them. They promised us that they didn't, they wanted to keep our culture and that we ran the business intact. So there's many, many other things. So those were putting those aside. It was more sizing the opportunity. Let's put it that way. Um, Helpful for sure. And so Jonathan had come to you over the, that three-year kind of courting, quasi-competing phase with some numbers. Did he put those, like, did he text them to you? Did he put them in an email? Was it just a phone call? Like, like I think people would be curious to know, like, how does it happen? Like, does this just like, does the CEO of a big company flip me an email? Do they, is it something more no, formal? No. Like, what phone was it? Calls. Phone calls. Like, so it would be like, hey, if we, like, if we offered X, would you guys bite? That kind of like, kind of glib. Oh, and, no, and, and, no. No, I think, look, if I love Jonathan for many reasons, but if there's anything he's really good at, he's selling, right? It's like he knows how to sell, which is obviously a very important quality in the CEO of a company that's scaling with a go-to-market to be sales, yeah. sales. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he would, basically, he did the long sale, right? He joked that he said, it was more difficult to court us than his wife and that his <laughs> wife was complaining to him about this. I think it might be real, but basically he sold the business. Like he sold the idea to, to me and to us very slowly over time by telling us how the business was doing. And then there were times where he maybe jokingly started to introduce what if, what if that? And I was like, yeah, what as if I used to tell him as if I can go, like and even consider something like that, right? So it's kind of never really formal. Although the one tip I will give anyone who's in who would be in my position is yep. you write everything down, right? So I had Evernote constantly, every call I'd write down, every number, every piece of information, because that becomes very useful later on. One to check whether what they were saying is actually happening and right and also to and i think what impressed me the most is that when i then checked my notes historically like all the things they were planning to do and goals they had because i used to ask them right what's the arr goal that you, you have and uh, like what what uh, like what are the new customer improvements you want to make and like where, where where are you selling and how are you selling so it's very interesting then to see them follow through and actually do these things and i think that gave us that three-year relationship gave us a lot of confidence in the end to know that they can what they're saying to us like they're going to stand by it you're almost doing reverse due diligence you're kind of doing diligence on them in, in a way Yes. as well as them doing it on you. How did it go from the sort of fun, jocular conversations to a letter of intent? Yeah, I think everything accelerated right after COVID. I think that's where the point where I think it became very clear there was a solid plan on their end. They had just hired their first M&A dedicated person as well. So that, like all the stars were, so you could, they just came in like full force and saying, okay, we want to do this. Here's the offer. So this is the point where now it was like, here's the number. And, and at this point, like the big questions were then what we talked about before, right? Like, will the business stay on its own? How, what do you want to do with it? How would it change? We received many offers, by the way, in the past for people wanting to buy the business, but there were occasions where they wanted the data or they wanted the customer, like, <laughs> like forget about it. Um, so 
this was the point where we started to have a serious conversation. Um, but we knew then from doing our own due diligence on our end, like not on them, but on the market and the transactions that were happening, that we weren't happy with the deal. And also, to be honest, the very first time they approached the subject, we were like, we're not for sale, like just absolutely not for sale. And then that, I think there were like maybe five, six, seven rounds of, so this is why I say we're lucky, right? Because the stars aligned in the sense that I think they got to know us. If there's ever a strategic deal, it's two CEOs speaking for three years and the two companies in the market fits really well. So very, very lucky from that point of view. And then I think there was a crescendo to the point where this literally became a problem for me. And what do I mean by that? Because there was a point, my co-founders are going to kill me when, I, when, they get, so they, when they're going to hear the, hopefully they don't hear this interview, John. Um, I, can't where I literally, I remember going to the CEO then, Mo, and I told him, this is a problem, right? Because now if I say this to the other co-founders, like I can't buy them out, right? And I can't hold this offer back from them, right? And like, what, what do we do? Right, because this is kind of this is a lot of money. This is a big offer, and this is actually outside of the money. The plan of what we're going to build together and do together, like within Hardware, there was more ambition bubbling up. It was difficult to hold back on this, right? So this is where we. I think there was a point where okay, we're like okay, we're doing this. This is serious. Like, let's negotiate. <laughs> so this is where then I sat down and I said, okay, what do I want? Because I felt bad the new CEO had just been in place for a few months, right? So what should the CEO get, right? What should the shareholders get? What should the team get? Uh, how do we protect the team, right? Like what are the things in place to make sure the company keeps on functioning properly? So this is where the point where I sat down and I set down an action plan and then I went to them and we started to negotiate. And then this was the point where this took much. So we negotiated very heavily pre-LOI, actually. So it's probably the, the most negotiated LOI ever. Um, and, and I think it's because we were not ready to sell, if that makes sense. Like, it wasn't on the table. Um, and later on, they, like, someone told me that that's typical. When you're not looking to sell, the LOI is where you get caught up the most. So we spent a lot of time there getting the foundations in place. Um, but then from then on, there were quite a few legal things and diligence going both sides, but it was relatively faster relatively than kind of getting to grips with kind of what the deal could look like, if that makes Got sense. It. Because obviously we're, we're not just cashing out here, right? Like we're now shareholders in Content Square, right? So that was also part of understanding their strategy, their plan, the shares, how we're getting shares, what rights, the, the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Help me understand something. And, and maybe it's just, me being dense, but you you got a a number from from Content Square that was so large that you thought, well, if I turn this down and one of these shareholders wants to be bought out, like it's not like you could kind of come up with the amount of money that this deal represented, it, like just out of your own yes. pocket. Is, is that am I getting that right, or just me? Yeah, that's that's a good point because I didn't give important context here, which is a little bit before this deal happened, we started to talk about what is the future of the company. And we said, we might consider actually doing a round because I knew some of the other guys wanted to take some chips off the table to some, some secondary, right? So mm -hmm. primary being put money in the company, secondary, put money in your pocket. So we floated around this idea. We spoke to some people. We know this was a possibility. 
And I crunched some numbers and we had a lot of PE firms running after us at this point because now we were starting to think big and like, how do we get to 50 million? How do we get to 100 million era, right? And suddenly you want different partners with you. You want, and I'm now thinking about how do I build a board? Who do I want on the board? So in an ideal world, I was hoping to kind of hire people on the board and not have investors, but you start to realize there's something to doing a little bit of that, right? Like if they don't have too much power, that could work. Um, but then exactly. So when we were doing this DS at Realize, because that was a parallel conversation that was moving much slower because some of them were saying, okay, this is great to have a cause, great to building a new leadership team, but when, I, when am I going to get something out of this, right? Um, this was the point where I realized, yeah, to your point, shit, like I can't pull, I can never compete with this. Even if I brought in PE, it's going to be difficult. So. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. And, and so I want to just make sure I highlight something you said earlier and, and get clarification. Did you say there were seven different turns of the letter of intent or something to that effect, like that number of sort of versions of it before you guys agreed? Yeah, no, I mean, it's more, no, no not the letter of intent. So I, I can't speak about the process in itself. So yeah, I'm right. not speaking okay. about that. It's more, it's more, it was, quite a lot of back and forth in the beginning because to be honest in terms of the offer or the number or whatnot because we we had no idea like literally we had no idea so maybe that's the piece that we missed out of built to sell which was we weren't even planned for this not even structurally legally like nothing we had never thought about this so i scrambled out to kind of get data to look at acquisition deals like some people gave me some information help i spoke to other ceos um, so we were, so they were coming to us with numbers and we were like, uh, 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 we, we don't know, we have no idea. So that, that's where there was quite a lot of back and forth. Help a fellow entrepreneur out who's listening to this about to go through a process of selling. What is the one thing you wish you had known or the one thing you wished you had done prior to entering into serious conversations with Content Square? I think the one thing that we did not think about properly is the legal structure of the business um, when you come to sell. So if, like I took the, we won't plan to sell a little bit too far. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> we're like, that's not important, whatever. Um, I think it's, it's important because it, 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 it's, and I'm not talking, it's not a matter of taxes. It's a matter of, it just complicates things for everyone so much. Um, but but what, how complicated it could be? I mean, like it's an incorporated company. How, isn't that just, isn't that it? Like, let me explain. What? Like, yeah. okay, maybe I'm a little bit biased because we're at this point, we're remote business, close to 200 people, right? So uh, contractors, empl uh, employers. And so it was complicated because of the way we had... <clears throat> Uh, one company, we had subsidiaries as well in the UK and Germany. So we, we didn't really think through when building that out, if there had I to see. be an exit, what would that mean to the kind of the structure, legality and all that stuff? I see. So you and, had subsidiaries that you had to think about and they all yeah. had their own sort of structure. Got it. That makes sense. A lot of people listening to this are wondering if they're going to take a valuation discount if they are 100% remote. There's a notion that, well, to build a valuable company, you've got to have people that come to an office and they physically have to get together. And if you're all remote, it can't be that valuable. You're obviously living proof that that's not the case, but maybe unpack 
a little bit or about how the fact that you were 100% remote, meaning people working from their homes primarily, how did that impact your value or the ability to sell your company? Yeah, look, I think the fact that we're B2C, which in itself means you've got a little bit, not a little bit, you've got higher churn, it's a much more kind of consumer approach, has a bigger impact on value, in my opinion. Um, um, Look, the whole remote aspect, depending on how you do it, right, depends, like, are you remote in the US alone, or are you remote globally? Are you remote Europe, US, and a little bit of other countries like we were with majority Europe? It's an, so it, it varies a lot, right? Remote is a very big topic. Um, I'd say, yes, there is a little bit of a discount for the simple reason that if you're not doing everything by the books exactly, which let's face it, it's unlikely you're going to be doing things exactly from day one, it's very difficult to hit the public markets and scale the company to a certain stage. So what does that mean? It means that if you want to do that, then you have to do it everything by the book, which is extremely expensive, which puts a burden and a cost on the business, which is not reflected into the profitability and the costs and all that into the business. So in my mind, yes, we did definitely factor that in. But my logic on this, and this is obviously where we now decided that we are going to consider selling and now we're in deep in negotiation, right? At this point, my logic was, we want to make this deal happen. So for me, it was more important to use the basic principles of selling anything, right? Which is, you don't want the price to be low, but you also don't want it to be too high. And actually, I, I didn't answer one important question that you brought up. Uh, uh, part of it, I should have answered something else. Another thing I would have wanted to know is a better understanding of how warranties and liabilities work. So, and in our case, I, I, was, I would much rather have a slightly lower valuation, but have a more beneficial liabilities, warranties, so a much a better ability to sleep at night after selling the business. Because let's face it, if, if you're pocketing personally, right, 30 or 35 million, right, like, does that really make a difference? But like, if you are, I'd rather take the 30 for like just inventing a number with no liabilities and warranties versus like a 37, but with bigger concerns and issues, right? So there's a lot more than money to the negotiation, starting from the team, the customers, the product, like what's your legacy? What are you leaving behind? And then more importantly, your personal liabilities, right? Because you are obviously, you're selling something very expensive, big and complicated. And obviously you need to then, you're liable for that once the sale is done. Yeah, for sure. And that's a huge, the important point. Last question, you grew up in Malta? So I, I was born in Australia. I was there until I was uh, seven, eight, and then moved to Malta. My parents moved back to Malta, yeah. Yeah. And, and what was... What was how, how would you describe your upbringing? Was it was it uh, you know were you affluent? Were you uh, was yeah, your parents it, relatively modest means? Like how did, how, did, how what was that like? Yeah, so so actually my yeah my parents come from very much, so they moved to Australia with literally I think my dad said they had five hundred bucks right so this was like they they moved there in the seventies with nothing, uh, got jobs built the house blah, blah blah they were waiting for a change in government back in Malta, um, and then later on the opportunity came along and they moved back, 
my dad bought a house in the suburbs um, of Sydney, half an hour out of the city, right, in the 70s, and then sold it in the late 80s. So he did well from that. And on the back of that, he bought a house in Malta, did the same thing. But we've, we've always been a family of sacrifice. We don't spend money on like clothes and fancy food. And uh, I've changed a little bit from that. But, but that's kind of what's built into my DNA, right? So um, you, you, you take care of your money and you're careful what you spend your money on. Uh, more importantly, though, I was born into this Australian environment, right, where I was like amazing cartoons and, and, and computers. My dad had a modem there and like advertising. Like at the age of seven, you're, you're obviously absorbing all of this, right? And then we mm. moved to Malta which is this dry island, which I love, right? In the Mediterranean. But in the 80s, it's not the Malta of today, right? There's like <laughs> TVs on aerials picked up from Italy. And like, so there was nothing, right? And everyone, it's an interesting fact that Maltese is the only Arabic Semitic language written with Roman <laughs> letters. So it's very tough, like to, to speak and like harsh. So I knew no Maltese or a little bit from what I heard from my dad. So that was a very, very tough and my, my parents threw me in the deep end. They put me in public schools. So I learned Maltese very quickly. Hmm. So I think what happened there a little bit also was um, I read about this very interesting phenomena, which is called uh, like this third culture thing. So you're born with, in one culture. You move to a second culture. Typically, when that happens to kids in their brain, they create their own third culture, apparently. And hmm. when I read this topic, this book, it really resonated with me because it happened to me. In my mind, I created this... Uh, kind of culture of justice, of respect, of like, I don't know. And a lot of those are the foundations of the values that we have at Hotjar. So I think what I really enjoyed most out of Hotjar, outside of the purpose we had, was also building the company culture. Like that was by far the thing that, that I enjoyed the most. And it's the thing I'm the most proud about because the team speaks about it incessantly until today. <laughs> have you ever talked to your your dad or, or your mom, I'm not sure if she's alive, but um, yes, they are. Ab about the success that you've, you've had. I mean, have you, have, have you sort of shared with them the financial success and, and yes. the, the impact that you've had? What was their reaction? Yeah. The, I, they're just so confused. So my, my dad's reaction when I told him this, this deal was kind of happening. It was like, his, his first question was, but are you going to have a job? <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, Dad, I, 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 like, if this happens, technically, like, I'm still working for Hotjar. I don't need a job anymore. <laughs> it's like, it's silence. It's like, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, so, so yeah, that, that explains it all, right? So, and my mom was more like, she was more like, follow your heart. Right? They know how torn, I was very torn about this for months. And they're like, follow your heart, follow what you believe is right. Like, just don't overthink it. And like, and also think of yourself as well, she said, because she knows I think a lot about other people. So to be honest, my mom, she was amazing support in all of this. My, my dad was just like, he just short circuited, I think so. I love this. I love his reaction. You could have a job. Were you squeamish at all to, to, to tell him and your mom about how much money was involved that they would think somehow you were, you had been, I don't want to say abducted by aliens, but, but corrupted by, not, 
it's not corrupted by that's not the word I'm looking for, but the sense that they had sacrificed so much and grown up with so little that somehow you wouldn't respect them for what they had had done in now that you sort of achieved this sort of level of financial success. Do you, do you know what I'm asking? I'm, I'm doing a brutal job of well, describing. No, you're doing a great job, to be honest, because this was precisely on my mind. And the reason is my dad loves telling me how much they've saved up and like, like, and all this stuff. And I was just telling him, I can just enjoy it. Just like do stuff with it. And now's the worst time to say that, but like, and he's, he's going to be 80 this year. My mom is going to be 75. So they're not young. Right. So I've been telling them, just enjoy, like, like, just enjoy it. Like, but they can't, they can't, right. Like they just can't. So look, the, and I know that, probably it bugged my dad a little bit to a certain, like he's very happy for my success, but I think deep down it bugged him a little bit that like he sacrificed so much and he pulled off such like, and then in the end, like, cause he, he loves to say, we're going to leave this money to you, you know, and, and all that stuff. And then like, I go pull off this shit. Right. And they're like, <laughs> and yeah. And the first thing that I wanted to do, cause it's been always on my mind. I gave some money to my sister. I gave her a house. Like this was like, cause my sister is an amazing person. She's a teacher. She doesn't think of money at all. So I just want like, I really wanted to kind of give her what I feel she deserves. Um, so so I know that he probably was a little bit pissed off about that, but I told him, but the, the big message I think, cause I was aware of this that I said to him was, this is your success, right? Like you left to Australia with 500 bucks and look what you've done, right? Like you've raised a family that has this joint, like I presented as joint success because it truly is. My dad inspired me when I was young with his Mac computers. He used to publish gazettes mm. like i used to play around installing ex fonts on his mac like if it wasn't for him i wouldn't have done this you know this is his success as much as mine like he bought me computers every year i used to drive him nuts i used to break his computers like my mom taught me english she was an english teacher you know it's, there's so much legacy in all of this and then we managed to meet up all together we celebrated this together and we just talked about like how this kind of all came together how how amazing a story it is for a family to just start from scratch with nothing and then kind of for this to happen so well i hope you share this interview with them i'm sure they'd be touched i um i can't i can't thank you enough david this has been just a real pleasure i've got pages of notes on technical stuff and and about growing, you know, the value of a company, but also on on some of the sort of negotiation tips, um, as well as your personal journey. It's just I, I couldn't thank you enough for doing this. So thank you for listen. For this. Same here. This uh, like I'm very proud of this interview, to be honest, because as I said, like I'm a, I'm a fan. I read the book before starting the business. It's on my list of books that I recommend to people starting. Like I li I honestly have a list. So I tell them, read these books. Um, and I have a lot of friends that come to me and say, okay, I want to start, I want to do something. Read these books. So it's, it's, it's there on that list. So this is a very proud moment for me in terms of, it's not about the money, right? I think many people say that. It's about like, this is a very interesting and weird experience for me to be interviewed by you and look back at this journey as to where it all began. So thank you for having me. It's an absolute oh my gosh. pleasure. No, 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 not at all. And and everybody would would frustrate would be frustrated if I didn't ask you what other books are on the list. So I've I've got uh, the E Myth, great book, uh, The Dip by Seth Godin. I think Millionaire Fast Lane is that what it's called? I don't I'm not familiar with that one, but that's okay. F uh, Fast Lane Millionaire. Okay, what so, else? So that uh, then we have um, 
personal MBA, which is a very good one if you don't have a business background. Great. Um, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, which Perfect. is great for you don't know marketing. Best marketing uh, book e- ever written. E-Myth, we spoke about. Selling the Invisible, which has some oh, overlap really cool. with, the, yep. with the other books. Um, I think that that's it. I think I did seven. I think good that's deal. it. And, and Dave, so, so people can learn more about you and the Hotjar story, hotjar.com. Is, am I getting that right for the place to, that's it. to send people? And, and are, you, do you, are you okay on LinkedIn or do you prefer people to reach out to you on different social channels? What's the best social channel for you? Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is fine. Also Twitter. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a, like I, I'm actually enjoying now speaking more and more to people who are starting businesses because it's fantastic now to actually give back and start to invest a little bit. So if anyone does have questions, I'm not going to expect to invest, but I'm more than happy to give back and pass on a little bit of what was passed on to me. So more than happy to answer any questions anyone might have. Well, that's very generous. We'll put your uh, LinkedIn profile and Twitter profile in the show notes, built to sell.com. David, thanks for doing this. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. You may be wondering how we find guests on Built to Sell Radio. How is the sausage made? Well, it turns out that a lot of our guests come from people just like you, listeners of the show who recommend guests for us to interview. And in David's case, a colleague of his had known that David liked Built to Sell, had read it, talked about it, and he nominated him for Built to Sell Radio. If you know of an entrepreneur who has built and sold a company and you think would make a great guest on the show, please reach out. You can simply go to builttosell.com slash nominate. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.